0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.
1: Kia ora koutou, no mai Welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here, where we chat with experts to learn about climate change here in Totahi. i I'm Molly. And I'm Emily. Join us as we go on a journey to find explanations, solutions, and hope for the future. Kia ora, Kelly, welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here. Kia ora. So we want to hear about you, what your role is and what your research is about.
0: Oh cool, thank you. Well I am an Associate Professor in Human Geography at Te Whare o Waitaha, the University of Canterbury. And I've been living here in Ōtautahi Christchurch for eight years now, originally from the Wadarapa in the North Island. And I spent um, eight years in Australia doing my PhD and working over there before I got the job here. And I guess I would say when people ask, what do I do? I say I do human geography. And human geography is about studying the relationship between people and the environment or people in place. And the particular work that I do tries to uh, look at that from the perspective of um, justice and and equity and justice and equity, not just for humans, but for non-humans or the more than human or the environment as well, a being or an entity that also is often overlooked when we're thinking
1: about justice. That sounds like a really interesting perspective to have about the environment, that it's a being and something that we need to consider in these conversations about justice. What does that look like in both a research sense and also in like a practical sense? Not that research isn't practical.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, well, yeah,
0: hopefully research is, is, has some practical That's to it as well. Well, I guess an example would be I'm currently working with a researcher at Auckland University of Technology, Amanda Yates, and she's uh, a Te iwi background, and she's been developing this approach to thinking about well-being that takes into account Māori understandings of mauri order. And one of the points that she makes is that in Western understandings of the environment, we often think about it as an inanimate object as a thing and even when we're thinking about other species we then have this divide between things that are alive and things that are dead or or inanimate like you know there's plants and animals that are animate and then there's rocks and atmospheres and rivers that are somehow inanimate and she talks about how in a Māori approach to environmental well-being that distinction isn't there everything has Modi or life force and so I guess why I'm bringing that up, (laughs) is that when we think about justice, we're not just researching justice between different human communities, but we're also thinking about what are the needs of a river? What does it need to survive? What rights does it have to survive on its own outside of it being a resource that humans can extract from and use? So the practical outcome of that research is we've developed a sort of modi order compass and indicator Tool. Well, she's developed a Modi Order Compass and Indicator tool, and then I'm trying to apply that in some local examples in Christchurch. One upcoming example is we're working with the organisation Life and Vacant Spaces, who broker vacant privately or publicly owned spaces and get artists or different organisations, social enterprises, or even you know, entrepreneurs, are able to use that space for free or at a reduced rate. So the research we're doing with Life and Bacon Spaces, we're looking at the last 10 years of projects that they have enabled in Ōtautahi Christchurch. And then we're using that Modi Order compass to kind of give a, give a sense or give an example of where those different projects have contributed. That Modi Order tool has like how have the projects contributed to hapori order or community connection. A Fenua order or green ecosystems or hunger order, which is circular bioeconomy and a number of other different things. So there's a quite a theoretical component to it, like what is life? Is it animate or inanimate? And then it comes right down to a really, really practical component, which is how did this particular organization enable an improvement in this particular area? And what does that mean for us going forward in this city?
2: That's so interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Are you able to speak to some of the results that Life and Vacant Spaces has seen and how they're applying it to future projects?
0: Yeah, so what I've done so far is I've interviewed 13, I think, different projects, different founders of different projects, and then I've asked them to tell me about what they've done, how it started, but also asked them to think about how their project contributes to these different elements of well-being, not just human well-being but environmental well-being. And what we've found so far is that what was really challenging for me is because I think sometimes I'm a bit of an intense kind of person that's focused on like justice, justice, you know, and then people were like, yeah, we've contributed to fun in the city. And I'm like, yeah, but what's the well-being outcome of that? And then my colleague who was analyzing with me, he's like, Kelly, that is a well-being outcome. Like fun actually is a thing that is important for well-being. So that was one learning that I really took away
1: from that. Was.
0: And then the other thing I think is creating space to experiment with different ways of being in the city. So, for example, you know, co-working spaces that enable people to work in a space with other people together at a reduced cost you know, creating those social connections. There's been projects which invite people to engage with the natural world differently through putting in place, for example, the East by East space out in the red zone. One of the artists had created all these little tokens that were kind of in sort of pixelated art form. And the idea was that young children and people who were into gaming would like reproduce their Mario Brothers game out in the park and they could jump and touch them because they were hanging in trees and so it was sort of a way of engaging with that space outside of electronics. So lots of different things that have come out of that. And in terms of moving forward with life and vacant spaces, we're kind of starting to collaborate on what that means now. So we'll do the exhibition sort of saying what's happened over the last 10 years. And then the next stage of the project is working with them to think about what time and energy and investments are they putting into this organization and what are the kinds of returns in terms of well-being for both people and planet.
2: Hey, that sounds really fun, particularly the, the Maori brothers in, in real life, so yeah, I'd like to see more of them. So it's really cool to see that you're focusing on things that are both beyond people, but also what well, I feel like our society has become very capitalist and money focused. So I understand some of your work focuses heavily on community. Can you tell us a bit more about your research of having a community focus and what community resilience may mean?
0: Yeah, so in terms of society and our economy becoming more capitalist, I think that's the concern that I began with in my research. So concern that capitalist forms of economy tend to try and extract value from things, whether it's from people by paying them less and less and less for more and more work, or whether it's from the natural world by extracting resources for use and, and making profit. So I have, you know, started out my when I was a student being really interested in is there other ways to organize our economies that have more respect for both people and planet, that that are more just. And I had the Good fortune to study for my PhD under Catherine Gibson, who is one half of the dynamic duo of J.K. Gibson-Graham. And J.K. Gibson-Graham have really tried to help economic geographers and feminist geographers think about what different kinds of economies could look like. And, you know, they were trained in the 70s under a very Marxist kind of approach, which was very much like we need to have this revolution and we've got to put in place a different kind of economy. But they kind of really challenged that from a feminist perspective, saying that actually, you know, we've seen change in gender relations without having a massive big revolution. We didn't have to burn it all down. We could actually just start doing things differently in a lot of places all over the world. And that would add up to something that change. So that kind of approach they brought into economics. What is the equivalent in changing the economy? Do we need to have a big revolution or can we just have lots and lots and lots of little changes all over the world? And that adds up to something that is what they call post-capitalist. And recently in the book that I've written with JK Gibson Graham, we've started calling it more than capitalist. So it's saying there's capitalist practices here in the economy but there's also like all these other amazing things, like life in vacant spaces, all these other things that people are doing that are actually not capitalist at all. And so, what if when we did our job as scholars and researchers, we focused on describing and theorizing and building up and proliferating all of those other things that aren't capitalist that are already here? What would that do for us and psychologically, in terms of thinking about? the possibilities for different kinds of economies and what would that do for us practically in terms of how those things all add up to be something that's more than capitalist. And so the image that we often use is of an iceberg where above the waterline is the capitalist economy and that's very visible. It's visible to people who like capitalism and it's also very visible to people who don't like capitalism. But what's below that waterline is all of those other practices that sustain life and that might be things like gifting or you know different kinds of transactions like barter or in-kind payments or it might be different kinds of labor like reciprocal labor where I do labor for you and you do labor for me and what we see when we look all over the world that actually if, if we expand our understanding of the economy to include that the majority of economic Transactions, labor, enterprise, property and finance are actually below the waterline and are not entirely capitalist. What that does for us is it gives us a huge kind of pantry of ingredients <laughs> to build a different kind of economy from that doesn't require us to necessarily have a revolution, although I'm not necessarily post-revolution, but it gives us a kind of different psychological start point, right? Like we already have a whole lot of resources to do this it's not just the big corporations that have resources because if we expand our understanding of the economy we all participate in this so that's what we call the diverse economies perspective and then community economies is a kind of step further it's taking a more intentional design approach to an economy using those ingredients from the pantry so it's saying here's all these ingredients in the pantry There's lots of capitalist and non-capitalist practices. So like a community economy is specific to place. And what we're thinking that happens in that process of constructing a community economy is that you can intentionally draw on all of those different ingredients from your economic pantry to build something that suits the place that you live in, the environment that you are part of and the community that you're part of. So what I'm really interested in asking is, what does an emergent community economy look like in Tahi Christchurch in climate disrupted times?
2: Wow, ah, that's
1: um, a big explanation, thanks. That was great. It's great to hear about like, all those different sort of thinkings about like economies and how that has changed through time and, and the different steps away from capitalism.
0: Yeah, and to go back to your question about the community resilience, I think probably another answer to that is like biodiversity producing ecological resilience. I think economic diversity produces community resilience, right? If we just have, like if you live in a town and your one industry is forestry and then something happens in that global economy and that, or or environmentally, it's just not possible anymore, your community is completely disrupted and undergoes, as we have seen, undergoes huge change and it's really traumatic. But if your economy relies on a bunch of different things, capitalist and particularly non-capitalist exchanges and ways of making a living, then disruptions that come through
2: any kind of disruption, you've got a little bit more resilience. How can then the community economy model Help with closing the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Then,
0: yeah, that's a question that needs, I think, needs consideration at a global scale, and it needs consideration in every particular community as well. And you know, the kinds of haves and the have-nots in Aotearoa Christchurch is going to look different from the haves and the have-nots in Shenzhen and in Southeast China, for example. So, yeah, really important question. I think in community economies thinking, we try and work systematically through a set of ethical questions that ask us to think about how do we survive well together? How do we encounter others in our economic transactions? How do we consume sustainably? How do we care for commons? And how do we invest in in the future in terms of investing in future generations. And so those kind of core questions or ethical concerns are the negotiating points that a community economy negotiates around. So you've got that pantry of all those diverse economic activities, and then you're trying to answer those set of core questions for the community in which you're working with. So I'm working with different communities around the world. One of my students is working with a Tibetan rural community and has Asked a version of those questions to that community as they decide how are they going to make a living in the 21st century with agriculture, with migrant labour, with different other kinds of activities that they're involved in, and what are their core values that the community is negotiating around. So the one that addresses haves and haves not is the survive well together. So the together part of that is it's not surviving well if some people are getting way more than they need and some people aren't getting what they need it's not surviving well if some people are getting like obviously way more than other people in a way that's clearly unfair but I don't know what the answer to the exactly how you do it in each situation because
2: I think that might look different depending on where you are I guess it got me thinking about an autotahi having a community economy sounds like a, an incredible idea and it sounds very people focused and that sounds like my ideal economy but what are some of the challenges in shifting and pulling some of these items in the pantry to autotahi
0: when i think of autotahi and including Littleton here one of the big inspirational changes that i've seen over the last eight years that I've been here is the work that Project Littleton has done. And I think Project Littleton is a really good example of a group of people who have really traversed, it was run by someone who was was on a benefit, you know, through to people who own land, through to people who are business owners. And they really tried to think about what do we want Littleton to look like? We want a time bank, we want a farmer's market, we want to have collaborative spaces and tried to just take small steps over many, many years to make that happen. But I think what the barriers that people come up against is, which we see all over the world, is the people who are most interested in change are the people who are the most affected by inequality, right? So if you are excluded from society, you're often the one most interested in changing society. If you are benefiting from the way that we've set it up, then you don't really have a huge incentive to change because actually it's all right. I own a house. So, you know, whatever. It's all, it's all good. And so one of the things we found when we we're working with organisations like this is that the majority of people involved are people who are really who, who aren't really excluded, but who may be excluded or marginalised by different processes. So a barrier might be resources and time because of, of the situation people find themselves in but then i also think on the other hand working collectively with lots of small bits of resources with high motivation for change actually creates more sustainable change and what you see sometimes if you have a single visionary leader who's got resources and decides i'm going to i don't can't even think of a christchurch example but you know i'm going to donate this you know million dollars and i'm going to build this thing and then as soon as that person steps out the whole thing doesn't have any social infrastructure to keep it together. Whereas that process of building from the bottom up, I think really enables that kind of change to happen. So the usual barriers, I guess, is the answer.
2: (laughs) I also see that it's easy to think I'll give more of my time when I have money and it's like hard to get out of the cycle of wanting like more money, and never on a never-ending treadmill sort of thing people who are living paycheck to paycheck or in more desperation it's very hard to think about environmental issues or like beyond yourself when you're in a point of more desperation I find it interesting that you're saying that those that don't need the change aren't motivated to change but are often in places where they have the most ability to create change as well
0: yeah that's true and I had some colleagues that did some research some geospatial research on this actually which was really interesting so they were working in New York and Philadelphia and they basically mapped the sites of what they called solidarity economy initiatives which are like projects that were trying to change things economically and they mapped out where all of those initiatives were so they might be like a community garden they might be like a time bank they might be like a some kind of racial justice organization that's trying to do change around those issues or it might be something about rehabilitating prisoners and what they found when they mapped it all out over the cities was that there was a concentration of those kinds of organisations at the borders between high-income and low-income areas or middle-income and low-income areas and at the borders between mainly white areas and mainly black areas. And so what that meant was that actually it's not just about you personally, it's about what you see every day and who you're involved in and bumping into. And so that geospatial mapping actually showed us there's a little bit of hope there, right? Um, There's a hope where someone with a bit more resources is regularly bumping into someone with a bit less resources, or someone with a bit more white privilege is regularly bumping into someone with a bit less white privilege, then actually that might be the space where some of those interesting things happen. And then the second thing I think I would say about that is around the idea that at some point in the future, I will have more time, or I will have more money. And I'm just turning 42 this year, and I think that future has arrived, and it has not arrived. There is, <laughs> there it never seems like there's enough money, and it never seems like there's enough time. And I have four children, and people always ask me, like, how do you manage four children in a full-time job? And I'm like, I don't really know. It just kind of, it just kind of happens. And I, I feel like when I look back, you know, 20 years ago, I had way more time than I have now and it just never felt like enough and I didn't have very much money and now I feel like I have way more money than I had then but it doesn't feel like quite enough because I'm managing all these other commitments and children. So I guess, you know, like many, probably you guys are nodding, you agree with me, but, you know, you actually the time for you to act is always now. There's never some amazing future that <laughs> that we're waiting for.
1: It definitely sounds like that comparison is helpful, both in terms of like comparing yourself to other people and being like, oh, actually, right now I do have like the time and the money because this person really doesn't have it, have the time or money. And I'm in a very privileged place. So maybe being able to see those people is also something that you can reflect back on your situation and be like, oh, yeah, I definitely have the ability to be involved.
0: Yeah, I think in following that up, though, I think we also have to practice self-care in that because I've also met many climate activists who have burned out because they're doing the opposite thing. They're saying, we're in a climate emergency, the time to act is now, it's urgent, I have to put in, you know, 23 of my 24 hours of the day into this and then I will rest when the climate crisis has ended. And the thing is, is that, you know, there's environmentalists such as myself and my colleagues who've been doing that same work for 25 years And there's always more work to be done. And maybe you might fix one problem, there'll be some other problem. So it's also about creating balance between your, like, what do you need to do to sustain yourself in order to keep going
2: over generations? And it's really a good point about that that connects into setting yourself up for future generations and that, that model where people can take over your work rather than projects falling over if you're not there.
1: I was just reflecting back on when you were talking about the community economy, like being something really local and having to ask those questions. And it sounds like you're getting a lot of engagement from that local community. But we were really curious, like just looking at your work, it seems like you've done work internationally with all these different communities. So how... Do you involve the knowledge from those people that you're working with, and how does it inform your research and the projects that you do there?
0: Yeah, so I started out doing research in northwest China, in um, firstly in the Tibetan National Park, and then in a the, the, the city called Xining in the far west. And I think, I guess, on one on one way, my career could have gone onto that track where I became a A China specialist and did all my research in China but what was really interesting to me was was the kind of contrast between the way things were done in the countries that I was working in like like China and Tibetan regions and where I was living at that time in Australia and, and New Zealand and I just got really interested in the idea of different worldviews we often use the word in, in academic language of different ontologies or different understandings of what's real or what's possible in the world and how those actually interact with each other and so the work that I was doing in China was actually about breastfeeding and one of the things that I found was that there were traditional Chinese medicine understandings of how the body worked and then there were western biomedicine understandings of how the body worked And that these were kind of interacting in the body of individual women who were trying to work out how to breastfeed, which is difficult when you start out. And I was really interested that actually you kind of had these two contrasting worldviews, which were being sort of simultaneously playing out for good and for bad sometimes. And I got interested in how different understandings of what the world is interact And, of course, one of the main ways they've interacted is is colonial, right? Like, Western understandings of the world have dominated the UN, they've dominated the World Health Organization, they've dominated, you know, the way the global economy is constructed, and they've dominated higher education. And what happens is that the worldview of one relatively large people group in Europe has kind of spread throughout the world and sort of, colonized and homogenized and wiped out other ways of understanding the world. Okay, so what happened at the same time? At the same time, we see large-scale environmental destruction. Are those two things related? I think they are. (laughs) So I'm really interested in understanding how other ways of understanding the world, which retain connection to nature and connection to the non-human or the more than human, or just think about it in a less binary way, What possibilities do they hold in this time of the Anthropocene or this time of rapid climate disruption? And what can we, the three of us, you know, who are in a Western country and and have heritage from, from Western peoples, what can we learn and how can we reverse or atone for some of the really bad decisions our ancestors have made. And what can we learn if we just create a space of openness? What can we learn? What things can we add to our pantry of possibilities by just paying attention to other ways of understanding the world? And so for me, all of those different parts of the world that I've worked in in Bangladesh and Bhutan and Vietnam and China and you know now working With iwi in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I'm really just interested in learning what other possibilities are there out there for these kinds of community economies, where we might do things a bit differently. Yeah, because I don't think we've done a great job, personally.
2: That's really interesting, and you've you've touched on one of the reasons that I went overseas to spend time in Cambodia. I uh, lived there for a year because I saw that some of Western society wasn't working and I wanted to see what a different community may be able to tell me and draw upon some of those experiences and one of the things I noticed in Cambodia was just how happy people are with sometimes far less resources and one of the things that may look small at our work lunchroom people would bring their lunches together and it would all be on the table and everyone would share with each other and there'd be no I'll just eat my sandwich by myself it was all one big lunch and you helped yourself to the pot of food and to me that really symbolized how community focused Cambodians are and then it flowed on to many other approaches whether it be how money's handled how business is handled is far more community focused. And so my question to you was, across all these different countries that you've researched and different communities, what are some of those differences that you've seen that we could learn from here in Ōtautahi?
0: Yeah, and I think to, to go back to your time in Cambodia too, it's not to say that we shouldn't try and address poverty, for example because we can say, oh, well, people in Cambodia are happy, but actually, you know, there's a high poverty rate. What we're saying is that poverty doesn't define a person, right? And that people who are poor, or countries that have higher incidence of poverty and lower incomes, have other things (laughs) that are really important, that we don't understand or haven't got skills in or haven't learned well for people in Autotahi, Christchurch and in, in Aotearoa New Zealand to, to learn from. That's really important and when I'm teaching here at UC I do find my students in my development studies classes don't have a lot of experience with that so it's really hard to imagine how do you live in a slum, what's it like living in a slum, how do you how do you do sanitation in a city where sanitation is not provided by the government? How do people self-organize to take care of their hygiene needs, you know, in a slum in Bangladesh or in a in an area of China where sanitation is not as water-based as it is here? And I think those are the questions that I'm really interested in. So one of the things I learned in China was that many people in Xining, where I lived, would learn when their babies needed to pee or poop and they'd learn the signals and then they would hold them out over an appropriate place and that might be just a basin it might be a a squat toilet might even be the floor if you've got a mop to mop it up afterwards that's better than washing a nappy or you know having it on your lap and those kinds of skills of learning how to read baby signals are amazing and then I could learn it too and then I could do it with my children and then I could find people in Aotearoa New Zealand doing it and talk to them about it and actually that's a whole thing now called elimination communication if you're ever wanting to look it up you know so that's a really good example of that my, my student Wally did a whole lot of research in Dhaka in Bangladesh and he looked at how people self-organize their own childcare and their own rubbish and sanitation services in Islam and in Dhaka so everyone put in tiny amounts of money for example to pay for someone to have a cart and have a rubbish bin and have a rake and to pick up and collect rubbish which was then distributed to different self-organized recycling centers where people would pick through it and sell off the stuff that could be sold on and so it wasn't that people were just living in in their own waste and recyclables but people actually organized themselves to do that and i think we've lost some of that self-organization not lost, but I just feel like that's not a thing so much in in Christchurch. One of the things I like about life in vacant spaces is it encourages people to sort of self-organize. But we tend to get into this binary by, is that the council's responsibility or is that the property owner's responsibility? And we kind of don't have anything in between. So those are two things I can think of off the top of my head that I really enjoyed learning about from other parts of the world.
1: You talked about a lot of the benefits of looking outside of just where you are and seeing like what other perspectives and worldviews there are. But do you find any challenges in gathering that local knowledge or working with people to talk about their worldviews? Like you talked a little bit about how sometimes your students have a hard time even imagining like what these lifestyles might be.
0: Yeah, I think think there's a number of different challenges. One is that you know, as much as I try, I still have my own biases and privileges. And, you know, I think I probably, am someone that tends towards the rose tinted glasses, glass half full kind of approach to the world. And so that means that I, if I, I might find it challenging to face up to injustice or face up to real poverty, when I see it, I'm trying to find some way to reconcile that with my worldview. So I think that's something I constantly have to work on. and I have you know I have some really good colleagues who are who are happy to call me out on those things when I or call me in when I need to be. So that's really important. And I think the other challenging thing, and my students have written about this in a collective piece actually, and they've written about how this particular group of students were from five different countries and in East and Southeast Asia and they wrote about how from the moment they started school they were schooled into the way of thinking that West is best that the West knows more that development and progress are what we're after that if we really want to be a modern country we have to chase after you know the modern things we need cars we need water based sanitation systems we need higher education from English speaking universities And that actually, you know, when they came here to do their postgraduate education and they're reading all of this post-colonial literature, which is challenging that and is saying, actually, this is a form of colonialism, this is a form of racism, they found that incredibly challenging because you're actually asking people to, well, I'm actually asking people to reconsider a deeply held worldview and even if it might be a worldview which I think is leads to a greater freedom of expression, it's still difficult. So I don't presume to tell people what they should believe about that, but I do provide them with a big range of authors to read who, who have come through that journey themselves, who've you know, come from other parts of the world and had to process that kind of journey. And that's the way I kind of deal with that barrier because I'm a Pakeha, New Zealand, European person in a privileged permanent job. You know, who am I to tell people how to think about the world, really?
2: (laughs) Yeah, and that's really cool that you recognise that privilege that you have too. I wanted to just ask, I've seen that you've done a bit of research on how the COVID-19 lockdowns impacted equality and access to food. So I wanted to hear from you. What are some of these tools from the pantry that have created other systems of providing food access and the quick transitions we saw in lockdowns?
0: Yeah, that was a piece of work that we kind of just pulled together at the last minute because we, you saw that that paper had many, many authors. So all of those authors were already working with different community Food groups. So, some of us were working with food banks, some of us were working with community gardens. I was working with Cultivate, which is an urban farm. Another colleague was working with ChiCycle, which is an organisation that picks up food that's going to be unused and redistributes it. And other authors were working with Marai that were redistributing food. And what we kind of noticed as we were just chatting together about a different project we were working on was how. Rapidly, those organizations had to kind of pivot during those lockdown times. And as you guys probably recall, during the lockdown, really the only legal places that were open to buy food were supermarkets. And then, of course, there were all these shortages because nobody had actually thought through in a general week, not everyone buys all their food from supermarkets, that actually you buy from a baker or you might buy your lunch at a cafe or you know, you might go to the butcher or you might go to the greengrocer or you might just go and pick food up from your local community garden, which you weren't able to do during that time. And of course, then all of these different organisations had food. (laughs) They had, they were growing food and were harvesting food or they were food banks that had food in there and then they had to work out how are we going to get this food to people under a lockdown system. So, Basically what we did was we all called our own contacts and did a Zoom interview like this and just asked them, like, how did they do it? And then we pulled together this paper. And one of the findings that really became clear in that paper was that idea of resilience being something that relied on diversity because actually we found just relying on the supermarkets in the end, I don't know how you guys found it, there wasn't any flour. There wasn't yeast but you also weren't allowed to buy more than two loaves of bread. And I had six people at home, so that's like one day's supply of bread. So, you know, that kind of broke down in many ways because they couldn't they couldn't work the supply chains. And what we found was that those organisations all worked really hard to sort of pivot in place. And then a bunch of organisations were engaged in this really locked-in debate about whether food banks were bad and community gardens were good or whether community gardens were bad and food banks were good. And it was really bizarre how that kept coming out. Like, oh, we should be investing public money in community gardens, not food banks, because food banks are the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And I was like, why do we have to choose, actually? Sometimes you need a food bank. Like, a lot of people need a food bank during a pandemic when people weren't able to go to work if you were on cash-only jobs, for example. But also a lot of people need access to a community garden and they need the community that that provides and they need access to the fresh vegetables or or whatever. So what really struck us and I think what our contribution was in that paper was how that resilience doesn't have to be one thing or the other, that it's that diverse in this food situation and in other situations. It's about fostering that diversity of ways of getting what you need for life, including food.
1: What do you see as an upside to climate change? Hmm,
0: that sounds like almost a trick question. (laughs) I think that, well, it's not much of an upside, but I think climate change has reinforced the fact that we are all interdependent. And some of us knew that already, and some of us have been able to escape that reality for too long. And I think climate change is just bringing that into public awareness, that interdependency with it, you know, with the more than human world and with each other is real. So I hope that we can continue that awareness and that's the way that things will change, right? As if we acknowledge that interdependency and act to foster it. Yeah,
2: that's a really good answer. Kelly thank you very much for sharing your wisdom it feels like there were so many things we could have talked about and I wanted to ask you about but unfortunately we can only put it into one podcast episode so thank you so much for giving us your time and I really enjoyed talking to you and I hope that we can continue more conversation in the future
1: yeah thank you so much Kelly
0: thanks for having me
1: We had such an interesting and wide ranging conversation with Kelly about these big ideas like colonialism and feminism and equality. And it was just so interesting to hear her perspectives on how we can shift away from sort of things like a money-based economy that lead to a lot of environmental destruction.
2: Yeah, I found it really useful that she she had on-the-ground examples as well, that it wasn't completely all theory. So, Molly, from our discussion with Kelly, what are your main takeaways?
1: One big thing that I took away was when Kelly talked about being inspired by feminism and the incremental changes that we've seen in gender roles, that led her to think that maybe there doesn't need to be a big revolution But instead, smaller actions and projects could help to shift away from, for example, a money-based economy or colonization or lots of things that we want to begin to address.
2: Yeah, that really gave a lot of hope. And something that I also found helpful was I was reflecting how in my experiences of being involved with initiatives that are community-minded, which are often run by volunteers there's always a desire for more resources and it's always like trying to make do with an oily rags, as they say. But I really liked Kelly's discussion about how banding together to share resources actually creates a more sustainable initiative and it's going to last in the long run as opposed to just having a singular person with lots of resources try to do their own thing.
1: Yeah, definitely that resilience that comes from having multiple people involved was a big thing that she stressed. And also just community resilience in general, like when she was talking about the first COVID lockdown and how there were a lot of shortages in supermarkets, but at the same time, there was a surplus of food at community gardens. She and her team were able to leverage this food that was going to waste and we're able to get that to people in need. And so that sort of illustrates that investing in like a diversity of food sources and also investing in community is what makes these systems more resilient.
2: Yeah, find access to food, particularly from the COVID lockdowns, something really interesting to talk about. A big one for me was how talking to Kelly made me aware just how much colonialism has influenced the world that we live in. She really got me thinking about just how many layers that there are to colonialism and how it's going to take a lot of reflecting by us all and as well as connecting with other cultures to see the influence that colonialism has had. I really like the way that she encouraged her students to ponder and reflect and go on that journey for themselves.
1: I think that was a big point from our discussion with Kelly in general is the engagement with diverse perspectives and people from different countries or who've had different experiences, that being something that's so important to this sort of work. And that was related to this concept that she brought up that I really liked, which was of a pantry having lots of different ingredients in the pantry and using those to make different recipes. And that was a metaphor for looking outside of your perspective, having lots of possibilities in your pantry from meeting people who are different than you are and who have these different perspectives. And then once you get to a place where you're able to start making change, you'll have a lot of possibilities in your pantry to draw on instead of just your own experience. And that just makes your actions consider lots of other people's experiences and thus will serve the community better and will also help these actions to be more resilient.
2: Yeah and I really like the analogy of the pantry because we often talk about the tools in the toolbox and we do refer to things as tools but for me talking about the pantry is way more inclusive it feels way more relatable and in a sense like a toolbox can be quite gendered but everyone is accessing a pantry and it's common for everyone to be cooking
1: yeah it feels more both accessible and also fun like I personally i am not someone who enjoys using a toolbox to fix things or make things. That's not one of my strong suits, but I do enjoy cooking and eating and everyone needs to eat. And a lot of people enjoy cooking and they can put their own sort of like spin on things. Yeah. And that's an awesome sort of feeling when we sometimes get bogged down again in this idea that it feels like we have these systems that are really entrenched in the world and how could we ever begin to change them but if we can have this view of it like playing around with things and trying new things and combining things it's much more lighthearted than like looking at something and and sort of banging your head against the wall and feeling like it's never going to change but doing something and making something new is really exciting
2: that's all we've got today if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at it's getting hot in here pod at gmail.com. Or you can find us online at plainsfm.org and on our Facebook page, it's getting hot in here podcast. Would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
1: kakite Kaki Day.